Welcome back to the program. T.S. Eliot may have had the best take on trying to understand the world when he said, We shall not cease from exploration, and at the end of all of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Perhaps that's even more true today as some places in the world are ever-changing and that with each visit we need to see and understand anew. My guest, Haroon Ullah, is a Pakistani-American scholar and diplomat. He trained at Harvard's John F. Kennedy School of Government, where he served as a senior fellow and a Harvard University presidential scholar. In his book, The Bargain from the Bazaar, he tries to give us a picture of a slice of Pakistan today, a country both a part of and deeply removed from the world. In fact, in that contradiction lies the very reason we need to understand Pakistan. It has the power to upend the world, even while it and its people try desperately to find its place in it. It is my pleasure to welcome Haroon Ullah to the program to talk about The Bargain from the Bazaar, A Family's Day of Reckoning in Lahore. Haroon, thanks so much for joining us. Jeff, I'm absolutely honored to be on your show. Big fan uh, of your work, and thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you here. One of the things that you write about and that, that's so fascinating about Pakistan is that for a country that is in the news as much as it is, we understand so little about it and its people. Talk about that first. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I grew up in uh, small-town America in eastern Washington State, not too far from where you're at. And for me, what motivated me was the people on my street, my neighborhood, would oftentimes ask me, what is going on in Pakistan? You know, they would see the headlines, and they're like, why do they hate us? Why are they burning flags? You know, this to us seems like the Soviet Union 40 years ago. It was a sort of black box. And, you know, at a very young age, a seed was planted, and I wanted to explain that. I wanted to make Pakistan accessible, go beyond the headlines. And so it was important for me to go there on the ground, as you mentioned, the T.S. Eliot quote, you know, to, to live there and to be among the people and try to understand what drives them. How do people, you know, the, in this family that I got to know in 2004, this true story of this family, you know, why does the father always walk over a thousand miles? you know, as a POW, what drives somebody to do that? Um, and what, you know, the Shez, the mother in the story, what makes her work day and night in the hospital as a nurse, literally doing triage um, and bucking a lot of the sort of cultural norms in Pakistan. So this, on so many levels, this family was fascinating for me. And part of what makes it so difficult to understand for, for the average person, and even in the context of the story that you tell, is how fraught it is with contradiction on so many levels. That's right. You know, Pakistan is, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of at these polar extremes for a lot of people. On one hand, you see the violence and the chaos, and I lost a lot of close friends to violence and terrorism and extremist violence. And my first book actually was, was really doing my doctoral work in Pakistan, which was looking at why do extremists, why are they successful? Why are they recruiting young people? Why do these young people join some of these groups? And so, you know, my research, my, my sort of thrust of what I wanted to do was to try to understand, make sense of what was going on. On the other hand, I found incredibly inspiring young people that were working in all odds, you know, in their communities against you know, being very entrepreneurial. And, and that's what left me cautiously optimistic because I see these two polar extremes in Pakistan and they live next to each other uh, in the cities like Lahore or Karachi, the sort of large metropolis cities of Pakistan. And for me, that was important because I always remembered, you know, growing up again, uh, sort of in a farming community in eastern Washington state, 
and trying to understand that we're not all that different maybe in some ways, that our worlds have collided. You know, Jeff, I remember I was sitting in the bazaar, this, you know, which is an Arkali, which is probably the South Asia's oldest marketplace, almost 300 years. And I remember one day in the heat, you know, and just sweating like crazy at the corner of my ear, I hear this Garth Brooks song. You know, I grew up listening to country music, uh, you know, because my youngest brother, you know, when he was going through open heart surgeries, was very much into country music and it was healing to him. And so I listened to this Garth Brooks song, The Dance, and I'm sitting here in this oldest part of Pakistan thinking, is this for real? And that to me was sort of my aha moment. Our worlds have collided. And in many ways, what goes on in Pakistan affects us here, even in small town America. The other part of it is the way in which all the different worlds collide within Pakistan. And you talk about, you know, what goes on within neighborhoods, the way that even those who are removed, perhaps, from the violence and the extremism and the fundamentalism are somehow affected by it in their daily lives. That's exactly right. You know, what was astonishing to me was to see that everyone is affected. Uh, they knew somebody that had either been recruited into one of these extremist groups or they had lost a loved one that was, you know, that had in one of the suicide bombings or one of the attacks. And so many families, countless numbers of families, had a very personal experience with this. And this Rizzo family, you know, this middle-class family that I met and their three sons, to me, what it showed me, what they taught me over the years was that despite all the hardships they face, and they face so many of them, that they, at the end of the day, they were able to find a way to continue going forward. And they were able to, you know, bind together to figure out how to sort of, you know, cope with what they see around them. And to me, this is why it's a story of triumph and resilience. Within the context of these families, particularly the middle class families, talk a little bit about how the family that you write about and families in general come to grips with the differences within the family, where there are members that really are caught up in so much of the violence and extremism. That's right, Jeff. You know, this family on so many levels could have been torn apart, could have been torn apart by the violence, could have been torn apart by within the family being tugged apart, you know, in terms of the two sons going in very divergent paths. And and yet they're able to sort of hold together and bind together. And that to me was fascinating because, you know, I grew up blue collar America. And in some ways, this family, you know, modeled a lot of the families that I knew growing up, you know, all hands on deck. Everybody had to contribute to the family, you know, whether working in the informal or formal economy. I remember I was a newspaper boy and my younger sister mowed lawns, you know, and these families within the same family had these tensions. And it showed that, you know, on a sort of a local level, that this is very real, you know, what families are facing with their young people and parents, you know, I remember late at night, always talking to me and saying, did I succeed as a parent? Could I have done things differently? And that really hit home because that's the same thing that families uh, that in my neighborhood in eastern Washington and other places I've traveled around in the U.S., the same thing that they're saying. And so, you know, what was remarkable was this family was able to find, to hold on to something, to continue going on day to day. How important is it to understand the history of Pakistan in order to understand some of the things we've been talking about? Well, I think it's important to give context. You know, it's it's still a very young nation. Uh, was born out of 1947 in the British India. But even more important than that was that at the partition, when British India split into India, into Pakistan, it was the largest mass movement in the history of the world. Over 6 million people literally got up 
and moved either to one side or the other. And even when we think in the context of the U.S. around the Civil War, I mean, this was, you know, 10, 15 times as big as that. And so what it gives context is that you had this very new nation that was born out of a, a lot of chaos, that was born out of this very sort of, in a very short period of time. And a lot of the issues that this family is dealing with are, you can trace it back to that formation in terms of the national identity, in terms of what role does religion play in, you know, in, as a Pakistani national, as a Pakistani citizen. And so, you know, for me, that, that, that context of the, of the wars and the conflict with India gives a lot of sort of substance to what the family is dealing with, because each of the sons struggles in their own way of how, as a young person growing up in Pakistan, how do they envision themselves and how do they identify with what's going on around them? Tell us a little about the middle class in Pakistan. This is the family that you write about is is essentially a middle class family. Talk about what that means. That's right. You know, there are in Pakistan, you know, this is what I think of a thin middle class. And so these are families just barely getting by sort of day to day, you know, week to week. They don't have a lot of disposable income. You know, this family, the Reza family, as I said, all hands on deck. I mean, the, each of the sons has to work. Everybody has to contribute to the family. Uh, savings and to the family income. And so many families are like this. They're really on the precipice of poverty. You know, two-thirds of the country is in poverty and lives under $2 a day. And to me, I saw that with my own eyes, living there and seeing how families are able to cope and try to make their ends meet. And these families are doing their best to give their kids a better future than what they did. You know, they're trying to give them better education, trying to get them to university, trying to get them into higher education. And so what struck me was, again, how these blue-collar families, in a lot of ways, had a lot of similarities to families that I grew up with, and that there's a lot more similarities. And I would have never thought that before I went to Pakistan. I would have thought that the world's apart, and yet there was these striking similarities. One of the issues there, as it is in many other parts of the world, is this huge unemployment rate, particularly for young men. Tell us a little about that. That's right, Jeff. There's a massive unemployment in Pakistan. You know, you have graduates of universities uh, that are unable to find jobs, young people that have finished their education, and they have nowhere to go. And part of this is ties into what we see with the violence and, you know, that young people have alternative pathways. And a lot of the extremist groups are very good on preying upon these university students because they provide them with an alternative pathway. They provide them with an alternative support network. And so for a lot of young people that are caught between these crossroads, they have to tug between what do they do? What groups can they join? How can they put food on the table? How can they earn enough money even to get married and to start a family? And so so many of these young people I met just wanted a chance. They just wanted an opportunity uh, to start a business or to go out and find a job. And yet there's so few of those jobs available. And so you found a lot of young people with a lot of time on their hands. And this is the sort of part of the story um, that I was trying to sort of, that was reflected in, in Bargain from the Bazaar is what choices do young people make and how do those choices affect the entire community? To what extent do these middle-class families and even the young people, both those that are employed and, and the vast amounts that aren't, to what extent do they care about the broader political landscape and about shaping policy in some way? Yeah, that's a great question, Jeff. I think the young people that I met were incredibly activated, incredibly mobilized. 
you know, they consume the news. You know, in Pakistan, they have this amazing information environment, over 70-plus channels on TV. Social media is skyrocketing, you know, in, in the country. About 20 to 25% of the country has access to it. And so I found these young people very engaged, and not just engaged, but looking to express their opinions, whether on the street in protests, whether through music videos, and you saw a lot of this sort of a renaissance in the arts, and plays, and theaters, and music, and dramas. And so I found these young people incredibly engaged. They wanted a different future. And last year, I was an election observer in Pakistan for their, for their national elections in 2013, and they had the highest turnout they've ever had. They also had the highest number of young people that turned out. And I went to rallies, um, and I've been going to rallies for many, many years in Pakistan. I'd never seen the amount of young people that turned out, um, new voters. It was almost going to like a rock concert uh, when you go to some political rallies. And so I found that very heartening. It means that young people want to remain engaged. They weren't getting pessimistic about the direction of the country, and they wanted a better future. How much does nationalism play a role? How do they see Pakistan, their their own country, in relationship to the rest of the world, specifically to India on one side and Afghanistan on the other? Well, nationalism plays an incredibly huge role. And that's a great point, Jeff. You know, I think that you find that young Pakistanis, you know, they're proud about, uh, you know, their country, whether it's in sports and cricket or whether you see it in terms of being proud of having an atomic bomb and nuclear program, they see themselves very much oftentimes, you know, as part of a larger international community. But they do define themselves, you know, in South Asia as sort of, you know, on the opposite side of India. And that's been one of the long-term things that you've seen back and forth. I, th- I do feel more optimistic that young people don't have as much of the cultural baggage as maybe their parents did. And they want to um, they want to they share the same cultural norms, they, they love the same music, the same dramas, the same movies in Bollywood. And so I saw young people that wanted to travel to India, wanted to study there. Uh, there was a very, very famous Coca-Cola and Pepsi have done some, uh, some work uh, in both countries, incredibly popular. So I saw that young people are very nationalistic in terms of being proud of where they're from, but they wanted to change Pakistan for the better. They see that Pakistan's perceptions in the world and I have to admit, even when I'm here, um, live visiting my neighbors, uh, and when I go to my community uh, in eastern Washington, sometimes Pakistan is a bad word. People see the things on TV, and they see this place, Pakistan, and say, what is going on? Why do these people hate us? And so I think that you know, Pakistanis pick up on that, and they want to change that perception. They want to change that narrative, because they feel they have so much more to offer than what oftentimes the perceptions say. How did the events of the past 12, 15 years, how has that changed Pakistan? Well, I think that the big thing I've seen is that violence has come to the cities. And that was, I never saw that before traveling in Pakistan in the 1990s. You'd never see attacks on a marketplace. You know, the violence is always in the northern areas or it was sort of in the rural areas. And now the attacks have become very much part of the narrative in the cities and public places and so you see it's hitting home because the bazaar, the marketplace, it's the great melting pot. You know, I was always fascinated by the marketplace because whether you're rich or young or old or poor, everybody has to go through the marketplace and the bazaar. And now you see oftentimes the violence coming to the bazaar um, and where there's these bombings at shrines and at public places uh, where people are shopping. 
And so I think that that's a big change. And I think a lot of people recognize that there's that internally there's a lot of these extremist groups that have taken a hold of the country, and that are you know that you know Pakistan you know oftentimes I get shocked when I see statistics, but over fifty thousand civilians have lost their lives on the war on terror in Pakistan over the last fifteen years, and so that's just a remarkable number, more than any country in the world. And so I see young people wanting to change that narrative. They want to take a hold of their destiny. They want a better future. And yet at the same time, there seems to be an element of hopelessness and, and, and frustration that things will never change. That's right. I mean, I think that oftentimes people see what's going on, and sometimes they, they do get pessimistic. They say, well, things aren't going to change. This is part of the establishment. This is how things will always be with the military. But then, you know, I also met a lot of young people that, you know, again, cautiously optimistic. They also see the past. And if you look back in the past, oftentimes they would remind me, they would show me pictures. They would say, look, we know the last 20 years have been tough and there's been a roller coaster. But just look a little bit further back in our history. You know, look at, for example, um, you know, they'd show me pictures of Jackie Kennedy, you know, an open motorcade in Lahore. Or they'd show me President Eisenhower attending a cricket match in Pakistan, or President Nixon on the back of a truck uh, in Pakistan, or, you know, I remember Lyndon Johnson when he was there, inviting, meeting a rickshaw driver, um, and inviting him to the White House to be a guest of honor, and he came later on. And so, you know, I, those kind of things heart, are heartening to me, because I don't think things will always be like they are today. I do think things can get better, and I think that the young people of Pakistan really want to build that bridge uh, to young people in the U.S. and around the world. To what extent do the young people want to build bridges to young people in the region? I think they, they're very forward-leaning. You know, as I said, a lot of the, you see a lot of the young Pakistanis that are dying to get a visa to go to India. They'd love to go to India to visit, to go to the tourist sites, to go to cricket matches, to experience the food, and the flavors, and sort of the economic resurgence that you see in India. You find a lot of, you know, student-to-student exchanges between India and Pakistan you also find a lot of exchanges now growing between India, Pakistan, and Afghanistan. And so for me, that's been probably as much as you know things are doom and gloom that we oftentimes see in the news. And there is a lot of violence, and there are a lot of endemic issues and problems. I just see young people, and part of it was of this Reza family, that they are, the, you know, the, in this story, that they are able to show how young people are able to move on from incredible tragedy, incredible circumstances, and yet find something to hold on to, and yet find something to sort of move forward with. Talk a little bit about the role of women. I think women, you know, I found I met so many strong women, you know, as Chez, the, the mother in this, in this family that I met, you know, who are working outside the house, who are the glue of the family, holding things together. And so, for me, I met a lot of young women that, you know, at universities now, in medical schools, there's more women than there are men all over Pakistan. And so you find a sort of incredible resurgence at the higher education and tertiary education of women. And you see the role that women continue to play. You find Charmaine Obeid, Chinoy, who won the first Academy Award uh, of a Pakistani filmmaker. So you find just these, these people that are really inspiring, Lala Yousafzai, among others, these young ambassadors of peace that are really sort of rising up and have a, a very organic, authentic voice and they're getting platforms, whether it's on social media, whether it's on TV, whether it's through theater or dramas. And so I met 
so many of these women that were trying to help reform the education system, trying to get more women to be able to go to school, to try to open up more women's schools. And I think that that's, that's where I see things moving forward, is that there is this sense that you know, women's education, women's literacy, women empowerment is a critical thing because it lifts up all of Pakistan. Ten years from now, will we be having a similar conversation? I hope not, Jeff. You know, I, I'm cautiously optimistic. I think that Pakistan is too important to ignore. It's just too important, not only for us, but, you know, for our future generations. And so, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic because I find enough young, inspiring people, both in Pakistan, both uh, here in the U.S., that are building bridges together. Um, then I think, I think that there's enough there that they're able to, at the end of the day, it's young Pakistanis that are going to be on the front lines of fighting against extremists in their own country. And so I find enough of them that are taking a voice, that are taking stances, that are using social media to fight back. And, and it gives me hope that things, the future looks better. And I certainly hope that we're not having the same conversation in 10 years because Pakistan has too much to offer to get bogged down in continued violence and extremist rhetoric. One of the things we're seeing in, in the jewelry business that the family that you write about has as an example is this effort towards entrepreneurialism, of building businesses, of trying to strengthen the economic foundation. Talk a little about that, Harun. Yeah, I think that, you know, I met so many entrepreneurial Pakistanis, and they want to be able to do business. They want to be able to, so there's these really burgeoning industries in Pakistan and IT. A lot of times we don't notice a lot of our clothes are made there. They have a very big textile industry. A lot of the apps that we use for our iPhone or for our Samsung come from Pakistan and are being developed there. And so there's, there's sort of these smaller engines of growth that I think are moving in the right direction. And more than that, you know, I think that commerce, at the end of the day, that's where the win-win situa- is, you know, solution is going to be, is where commerce and trade, Pakistanis want to badly trade. They want to be able to export. They want to be able to be part of the world economy and, you know, I used to joke when I was there, mangoes, you know, mangoes are this great sort of, uh, you know, national pride. You know, Pakistanis now are starting to export mangoes all around the world. And, you know, I used to joke because, you know, with all due respect to Greg Mortensen and Three Cups of Tea, mangoes are the best icebreaker. <laughs> and mangoes to me, I don't know if you've had a Pakistani mango, Jeff, but they are, if you eat a mango and you rip it open with your hands, if you eat three mangoes with somebody, I guarantee you, you will become very good friends with them um, because your guard's down and there's no clean way to eat a mango. And mangoes represent that commerce because it's one of Pakistan's exports. It's one of the things that Pakistan wants to send to the rest of the world. And so to me, I think that you're going to see more and more where Pakistan wants to be integrated. They have an incredible amount of human capital and talent. And there's no reason that they can't work more with India and with the rest of South Asia um, to be at the cutting edge of some of these industries. And finally, talk a bit about the bazaar itself. And, and in many ways, it becomes the metaphor for so much of what we've been talking about. Absolutely, Jeff. You know, I think that the bazaar, it, to me, represents the best of Pakistan's future and also potentially the worst of Pakistan's future. Because in many ways, as I said, it's the great melting pot. Of Pakistan. It's really sort of a microcosm. Everybody has to pass through. It's sort of the lifeblood of the community, of the city. And anarchically, where I had the honor of spending a lot of time sitting, um, you know, it's really sort of, you see everybody. You see young and old, and you see entrepreneurs of every stripe and color that come through there to sell, to do business. 
and it's really integral. And to me, I think that's why the bazaar is so central because it, it serves that community function. It serves as a platform to give young people a chance to sell and to do commerce. And also at the same time, it is also experiencing all the after effects of the violence and of extremism. You see now the attacks on the public places. You see where more and more violence is taking place in the bazaars. And so the bazaar is not immune. It's a reflection of what's going on, sort of oftentimes the chaos we see in places like Pakistan. And so I still think at the forefront are going to be these people in the bazaar because they're sort of the trailblazers. They're the ones that are interacting with the rest of the community. And that's the lifeblood of the community. And if they're able to sort of bind together, like the Reza family, find ways to continue going on, then I think Pakistan has, has a brighter future than many of us think. Harun Ullah, the book is The Bargain from the Bazaar, A Family's Day of Reckoning in Lahore. It's just out from Public Affairs. Harun, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Jeff, it's an absolute honor. I'm a big fan of your show, and thank you so much for having me and to communicate with your listeners. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.